Uh, it is a blessing to be here yet again on another Lord's Day to be able to open up the Word of God together. Uh, we are now back, this is our third week back in the Gospel according to Mark. We have just a few weeks left in Mark's Gospel. Um, I will tell you that the next three weeks we will be dealing, not this week, but after this week, the next three weeks, uh, we will be dealing with the crucifixion, the death, the burial and uh, of Jesus. And, um, and so we're going to be looking at the same text uh, over those three weeks. It's a, it's a lengthy text. We're going to rehearse it together in the sense that we are going to read the whole thing together all three weeks, even though we may be dealing with different parts of it uh, during the course of those three weeks. This is, I mean, there's a reason that we say it this way, right? Like the, the crux of a matter. Crux is Latin for cross. It's the very thing that everything else hinges upon. That's why we use that phrase or that terminology. And, and this is the crux of the matter for us as believers. And so we're going to spend three weeks uh, after today looking at the crucifixion, the death, and the burial of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and our Savior. And so I say that to you on one hand just so that you can prepare your own hearts. There might be a sense in which you kind of know where we're at in the narrative and know where we're at in the storyline and you kind of know that it's coming. It's another thing to, to focus your heart and your affections, your, your attention on that, to, to consider that we're going to spend three weeks together in that text, that we're going to read that account three times in a row together. Um, and, and I ask you just to pray. Ask the Lord to, to really soften your heart uh, as we approach that time and, and spend that time considering the cross of Jesus and uh, that, that it would not be something that, that we grow cold to uh, but rather that we would continually be um, seasoned and softened by the passion of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Remember that when we started this whole thing, we said that Mark, uh, even as all the evangelists' letter, uh, letters to the church were, we call them what? The Gospels. What is it? The Evangelions. The, the, the good news. The message about Jesus Christ. But we said that they are specifically, they stand alone in history as their own literary genre. There are only four books in this genre. There will only ever be four books in this genre. And it is Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the Gospels. Specifically, we said that these are not just historical narratives, they are passion narratives, that they are written for this purpose. Mark has been building to this moment because the thing that he believes matters more than anything else to the persecuted church and the Christians in Rome is the passion of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. 
that the thing they needed to remember more than anything else, the one thing that was going to give them endurance and patience and hope and joy in the midst of suffering under a tyrant like Nero was going to be the passion, the suffering, the crucifixion, the death and the burial, ultimately the resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so, we have come to that time. We are nearly there. Uh, after today, that will be our next three weeks. And, and then, literally, you'll watch as Mark's like, boom, there it is. And let's close the book. <laughs> and, and so, we are just several, just a few weeks away uh, from the end of our time in the Gospel according to Mark. Today, we are beginning a new uh, chapter in Mark chapter 15, we're going to be reading verses 1 through 15 together. And so I invite you to grab your Bible. Uh, and if you don't have one, it looks like today you're going to have to share someone nearby. Uh, and so get, get close, scoot close, uh, or grab your mobile device and, and look on a Bible app on there. But Mark chapter 15, verses 1 through 15, I'll invite you to stand with me. For the reading of God's word, I'll invite you also to read out loud along with me. At the end of that reading, I will say, this is the word of the Lord. And I invite you to respond in true praise by saying, thanks be to God. Mark chapter 15, verses 1 through 15. Let's begin. And as soon as it was morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council. And they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. And Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, you have said so. And the chief priests accused him of many things. And Pilate again asked him, have no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you. But Jesus made no further answer so that Pilate was amazed. Now at the feast, he used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answered them, saying, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. And Pilate again said to them, Then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, Crucify him. And Pilate said to them, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Crucify him. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. You may be seated. Today, as we look at what Mark presents for us here, which is at least a portion of Jesus' suffering under Pontius Pilate. Uh, our parallel passages are from Matthew 26, Luke 22, and John 18. 
John gives a, a great more uh, depth to the trial of Jesus, the different things that are said back and forth. Uh, we find out that John had friends in high places. And while Peter was lingering in the shadows of the courtyard with the servants, uh, John had made his way uh, into the palace uh, and was able to observe the things that were going on from a fairly close perspective. Um, we will remember that Mark is writing to Roman Christians in Rome. And so his focus is on this historical Roman character of Pontius Pilate, um, a name that would have meant something to the hearers in Rome, uh, a name that they would know, a name that they would have heard in the past before. Uh, whereas Herod Antipas, Antipas, who Jesus also saw on that night, if you read the other accounts of the Gospels, you find out that Pilate receives Jesus. Then he finds out that Jesus is a Galilean. And because it's Passover, uh, Herod is not near the Sea of Galilee and his palace there, but is rather uh, in Jerusalem. And so he sends him over to Herod. Uh, and then Herod ultimately doesn't get what he wants out of Jesus because really what he wants out of Jesus is basically some kind of sideshow, freak show, circus thing. And so Herod's like, well, I, I didn't get what I want. Let Pilate deal with it. And he sends him back to Pilate. Um, but let's consider some things that have led up to this moment. Jesus, after having already spent some hours in great human agony, in fact, as we see here when it says, as soon as it was morning, it is the morning after the Lord's Supper. I mean, so much has transpired in such a short period of time. In fact, from the time of Jesus' betrayal by Judas in the garden to the beginning of Him being delivered over to crucifixion, it's estimated that really only about nine hours have transpired in that amount of time. Uh, don't forget, as we talked about a couple weeks ago, that it was a legal requirement for Jews that there must be a 24-hour waiting period between judgment and the carrying out of that penalty. And so the, the, the scribes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, all of the Sanhedrin are colluding together to break God's law, to break their own traditions, to not allow a moment to escape where they might have Jesus slip through their fingers. And so think about these, these last nine hours. Jesus, having already spent some hours in great human agony, sweating great drops of blood as He prayed to the Father. What was He praying? Why was He uh, reacting in such a physical way? He's in the garden and what is He praying? He's saying, Father, if there is any way for this cup to pass from Me, please let it pass. And what cup is he referring to? He's referring to the cup of wrath. The cup of God's wrath towards sin. And so he's, he's praying to the Father concerning the cup of wrath that awaited him just moments away. Where Judas is already on his way uh, 
And Judas comes in and Jesus is betrayed by the treacherous kiss of Judas. And, and then the abandonment of his closest disciples is not one or two or three or four or five or even six, but all of them, all 11 of the rest of his disciples just into the night just disappear. One of them, possibly Mark himself, uh, who was not a one of the twelve, but was in close proximity to the twelve, likely uh, the son of the woman who was hosting uh, possibly the Jesus and his disciples in the upper room, flees away naked uh, to get away from the persecution that is coming against Jesus on this night. And during this night, during these hours, Jesus endured the the this night of beatings and false accusations by murderous men, a grotesque display as the shepherds of Israel, the Sanhedrin, the whole council, they were the shepherds of Israel. They were the ones who had been tasked by God in His law to faithfully watch over and protect the flock. And instead of leading them to salvation, they were delivering them over. They had completely given themselves over and joined the ravenous wolves of demonic forces at work in the spirit of Antichrist in their pursuit to put Jesus to death. Meanwhile, Peter, last week we see he denies the Lord. But while everyone else abandoned him and proved their faithlessness, Jesus remained resolute and steadfast in pursuit of the Father's will, even as He had prayed, Father, not my will, but Your will be done. And of course, this is all according to the will of the Father. It's all according to the purpose and the will of the, fa of the Father. This is all a part of the plan for the consummation of the covenant of redemption. Jesus' life is not going to be taken from him, as he says in John chapter 10. I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it up again, speaking of his own life. And then he says this what? This charge I have received from my Father. This charge, this is what the Father had instructed him to do. And what have we seen about the whole life of Jesus? Everywhere that he goes, everything that he does, everything that he says, he is going and doing and saying only that which He has been instructed by the Father. And so this is where we find Jesus. And this is interesting. We look at Mark chapter 15, 1-15. And what do we find? We find this is it's a historical narrative here in the midst of the Gospel. It's relating to us facts about what happened the night that Jesus was betrayed and delivered over and the next morning as He is taken to Pilate, likely to provide the facade of some sort of legal proceeding where the council are trying to uh, pawn off the uh, responsibility for the death of Jesus, which ultimately we see it to be a facade because they will in the end, though we don't see it here, you can look at it in the other Gospels, 
Ultimately, the chief priests and the scribes and all of the people when they are shouting, crucify Him, crucify Him, crucify Him. We see Pilate is trying to wash his hands. He says, I wash my hands as if, as if water, mere water could remove the guilt of condemning the Son of God to death. He washes his hands. But what do the people say? Let His blood be upon us and our children. And it will be. In A.D. 70, God will rain down wrath on Jerusalem through the Roman government. And there is no other way to receive it but that it is the absolute punishment of God upon a wicked and perverse people who put the Son of God to death. We look here, Mark 15, 1-15, I ask you, what is there for us to do in this? Where, where are the imperatives, Pastor? What are we supposed to take away from a text like Mark 15, 1-15? Well, it causes us to ask a question that many people ask. Is Christianity a bunch of do's and don'ts? A list of rules for us to follow? <clears throat> Well, I'll definitely say that it's it's not less than that. There's certainly much more. It's much more than a dead religion of rituals and rites to make people feel better about themselves or some kind of crutch for the weak. The question might be, what is there in this text for us to do? And I would submit to you that there is nothing. There's nothing in this text for you to do. Sure, we could come up with some life lessons. We could talk about Pilate's cowardice or the hypocrisy of the Sanhedrin or even the resilience and the wit of Jesus in the face of this persecution as admirable as it is, but that would not be the Gospel that we are preaching today. Because the Gospel is not good advice it's good news. And that is really not the point of this passage. Mark didn't include this so that you would go here and go, well, where do I fit into Mark 15, 1-15? through 15? Which character am I in the story? It's not the point of this passage. Now there are times when our passages on Sunday mornings may be filled with imperative language. Because yes, Christianity is not just a list of do's and don'ts. But there certainly are some do's and don'ts along the way. Things that ought to inform the way that we live our life now in the light of and in the glory of Jesus Christ, the One who came and lived His life for us. Things that in light of who God is and what He's done for us in Christ, we must, by God's grace and the help and empowerment of the Holy Spirit, strive to do. And when we get to those passages, let us not fail to preach the law in all of its terror. 
But there is no lesson for us here today in terms of what we must now go out and do to make our lives better or live our best life now. There's nothing for us to do. There's only something for us to believe. Because again, it is the Gospel that we have come here to preach and to hear today. And the Gospel is not good advice. It's good news. It's not about what we must do. It's about what has been done. Here in just a few moments, we will stand and say together, I believe in God the Father Almighty, Maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day He rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence He shall come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Have you ever noticed that there are five persons mentioned in this great and historical creed? Three are divine. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. One is nearly expected. The Blessed Virgin Mary, the Mother of Jesus. This young woman whom God chose to use in such a significant and special way. Who herself needed the Savior that she bore for nine months until He was born. There's one other person mentioned in the creed. For hundreds, now even over thousands of years, the church has recited this together over and over and over again. And there's one historical person. It's not Abraham. It's not Isaac. It's not Jacob. It's not David or Daniel or Joseph. It's not any of the Old Testament patriarchs. It's not one of the disciples are mentioned. No one. It's this Roman prefect, Pontius Pilate. The Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, Mary, the mother of Jesus, and Pilate? Why Pilate? I mean, in the formation of what was going to inform our faith, we could have chosen, betrayed by Judas, denied by Peter, delivered up by Caiaphas and the rest of the count. We could have said anything, but instead we anchored this in, suffered under Pontius Pilate. Why? Why Pilate? Of all the historical figures that we could think of including in something that we memorize and recite to one another every week, why Pilate? Pontius Pilate was the Roman governor, the prefect, as I said, of Judea. From AD 26 to AD 36, it's 11 years. 
At 11 years, that means that he governed over Judea for the Roman uh, government under the emperor Tiberius longer than anybody else. You may think, wow, he must have been a great, great guy. No, actually, it's the exact opposite. You see, Judea, I, I don't even know how to say this um, politely. There's words in the military for the kind of posting that this was, and it was not good. This was, this was the 4F. This was, this was the last assignment that anybody wanted. And it was treated like a proving ground. Why don't you go to Judea and let's see how things work out there. And if you do well, then maybe you can advance. And many did. Many went to Judea. They would be there for a short time. They would prove their acumen and administrative skills in looking over this rebellious group of Jews, and they would be promoted and sent off to other more prestigious posts. Pilate never got that promotion. He lingered and lingered and lingered in Judea for over a decade. Of course, he is most known for his involvement in condemning Jesus to death on the cross. But there were multiple insurrections that happened under Pilate's rule. And so when he begins to feel like in our text today, like the people might be on the edge of revolt, remember he's already delivering over to them Barabbas, who it says was a murderer in the insurrection. That insurrection must have just taken place. Remember how quickly Jesus went from arrest to now possible crucifixion in the space of nine hours. I don't think Barabbas had been hanging out in the jails being fed off of the government coffers for very long. And so Pilate is, is already getting over some kind of insurrection that happened. And every time something like this happens and word gets back to Tiberius in Rome, it, it, it means yet another renewal of Pilate's time in Judea. Outside of the four Gospels in which Pilate is mentioned in all four Gospels, uh, Pilate is also mentioned by Tacitus, Philo, and Josephus, all secular and or Jewish historians. In addition, the Pilate Stone, so-called, discovered in 1961 and dated to A.D. 30, includes a description of Pontius Pilate and mentions him as the prefect of Judah. Pilate is also mentioned in the apocryphal writings, but these were all written at much later dates. In the Bible, Pilate is mentioned solely in connection with the trials and crucifixions of Jesus. We don't have any other mention of him until we see Jesus brought before him. But all three of the synoptic Gospels portray Pilate as reluctant to crucify Jesus. This is interesting because in the extra-biblical accounts of Pilate by Tacitus, Philo, and Josephus, all of them agree that Pilate was not a nice guy. Any excuse that he could to get rid of an inconvenience, he did, and he did as quickly and as thoroughly as possible. He was stubborn. He was rude. He was not a good dude. 
And so the fact that we see him wrestling and struggling even over uh, being this reluctant to crucify Jesus is, is interesting. Pilate says what? I find no guilt in this man. In our text today, what has he done? Luke 23, verse 22, what crime has this man committed? I've found in him no grounds for the death penalty. His conscience is already bothering him. And we find out that in the middle of this whole ordeal, his wife sends him a message that she has been tortured all night with dreams about this Jesus and that he should have nothing to do with him. Should have listened to his wife. But God had a plan, didn't He? A plan that would not be thwarted. A plan that included inserting this unscrupulous weasel of a man in a position of power and authority. Shall we borrow a phrase from Esther for such a time as this? That he would be so spineless that he would kowtow to a ragtag bunch of Jews rather than standing up for truth, for innocence, for what was right what was good, what was beautiful. Instead, he wanted what? The same thing Peter wanted. Distance, safety, and comfort away from Jesus. So why Pilate? There were certainly stronger characters in the story. But I'll tell you what, not one of them would have had a stone that we would have found in 1961 that verified that he was there in AD 30. So why Pilate? Pilate is an historical marker. Much like when Jesus is born, and it says in Luke chapter 2, verse 1 of text that we read during our uh, season of celebrating the incarnation and Advent and Christmas, when it says what? In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. Now, nowhere else in the narrative do those two guys factor in. They are placed into the narrative as historical markers. Just like if you have a geneticist who's trying to figure out DNA and put genes together, they are looking for specific genetic markers in whatever uh, sample that they are looking in. Something that will stand out to them that they can identify that they already know so that they can compare it to everything else. 
And here in the text, God, by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, breathes out the Word of God through the evangelist and one of the people, the historical people, that he inspires all four of them to write at different times and in different places and from different perspectives is Pontius Pilate, this spineless weasel of a Roman governor in Judea who nobody cared about except him, Pilate. He cared about himself. Nobody else. Apparently his wife cared a little bit. I think really it was like, I had a terrible night. I don't want to have more terrible nights. You need to not have. So it was really kind of a selfish thing more than it was her caring about him, which ultimately he will get banished to Gaul, to France, where he will die. And as legend has it, his remains will be passed throughout Europe. His remains will be, will be transferred from one small village hamlet to another. Stories of his body being interred into lakes and, and, and things dying and, and, and economies being ruined until they say, get rid of Pilate's body. Now, I don't know if any of that's true. But I mean, would you want to have Pilate's grave in your hometown? Probably not. But he's an historical marker. Think about when Paul writes to the Corinthians and what does he say? Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel, of the good news, this message of grace through faith in Jesus Christ. He says, which you received, you already received it, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you preached in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. And then listen to this. What does Paul do? That he appeared to Cephas. Who is Cephas? It's Peter. He appeared to Peter. Then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time. Listen to what Paul says. Most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James. Then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me, for I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and His grace toward me was not in vain. Why did he say that? Why didn't he just say, and Jesus appeared to a bunch of people? Well, Peter was traveling around some of the same places that Paul was. It was only going to be a matter of time that Peter probably showed up in Corinth. The fact that he appeared to over 500 other people, and Paul says most of whom are still alive now, means what? Hey, if you want to check out the story, go talk to them. They're there. Go get it from the horse's mouth, so to speak. Go, go and listen to them tell you exactly what they saw. Let them testify as witnesses to the life, to the death, to the burial, to the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus Christ, our Savior, who died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. To James. Who was James? James was the bishop over Jerusalem. And most likely one of Jesus' brothers 
Go talk to him and see if what I'm saying to you is true. It's an historical marker. Or when Paul, think about this, Romans. We love Romans, right? Do you ever get to chapter 16 and see all the names and go, I guess I got all the doctrine I needed and skip right over it? Paul addresses over 20 different people by name at the end of his epistle to the Romans. One of whom is Rufus, the son of the Simon of Cyrene who carried Jesus' cross. And Mark is going to mention in our text next week, not just Simon, but Simon the father of Rufus and Alexander. So that when we open up Romans and we see Paul saying, and greet Rufus and his mother who has been a mother to me. These, these are people who are still alive. They're people who are still around. If there was something going on here where they were trying to come up with some kind of trumped up, weird, false thing. I mean, have you ever played the telegram game before? Or the tele- whatever you call it. You know, we used to do it in school, right? We'd line up. And someone would be told a message at the front of the line, and then you whisper it, whisper it, whisper it, whisper it, whisper it, all the way to the end. And, and the, the, the gag was, when you get to the end, it was never exactly what the first person said. I mean, you could, we're not going to do it today, but I bet we could line up ten people, and we, we would get a different message. And yet here, we're talking about hundreds and hundreds of people who are saying the same thing over and over again, not because they've been coerced, not because they, they, they came up with it together and here's, here's something that we can say. Because even though they're saying the same thing, they're saying it from different perspectives. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all the same content, yet from different perspectives. Which if they had said exactly the same thing, any judge in any court would throw it out as coached testimony. And they weren't, I mean, God bless them. But most of these 12 disciples, I don't think were on their game enough to say, hey guys, you know, in 2,000 years, they're really going to figure out case law and coach testimony. So we need to make sure that we say the right thing without saying it the same way. No. No. Why Pilate? Because Pilate gives us an anchor on the timeline of redemptive history to say if this is something that really happened, then there must be evidence here. Because the Christian faith is an historical faith. We're resting not in good ideas We're not resting in some kind of therapeutical mantras that we can repeat over and over and over again to ourselves so that we can feel better. We're not resting in good ideas, but in the person and the work of the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who left heaven and came to earth incarnate as man born of a woman, a babe born, a man who grew up in real space and time in history, and lived a perfect life for us and in our place, and then suffered under a real man, a historical figure, Pontius Pilate, 
before He was ultimately crucified for us and in our place and for our sins. All four Gospels describe Jesus meeting with Pilate. But John's Gospel is particularly detailed in its description of this event. And there comes a moment where Pilate presents Jesus back to the council. And in John 18, verse 5, he says, Behold the man. Echo home. Behold the man. What man? The man. Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. It's called by theologians the Proto-Evangelion, the first gospel. My daughter Cosette asked me this week, Daddy, who was the first preacher? Do you know who the first preacher was? The first preacher of the true gospel was? Was God Himself. The first preacher was a false teacher. Was the serpent. Was the snake in the garden. But the first preacher of the true Gospel was God Himself. And here it is in Genesis 3.15. In the midst of the curse because of sin, God says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, speaking to the serpent. And between your offspring and her offspring, He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise His heel. The pronouns there are important. Eve thought they were. Because as they leave the garden, she knows Adam. Adam knows her and she conceives and she bore a son and she named him Cain. Genesis 4, verse 1. I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. But this was the problem. Cain was a man, but he wasn't the man. He wasn't the man that God at the very beginning in the midst of the fall had promised would come. And when Pontius Pilate stands up and says, behold the man, I believe that like Caiaphas had the night before, he was unwittingly and unknowingly, prophetically, declaring the truth of God. That Jesus was the man from Genesis 3.15.
the man that Eve had hoped that she had bore when she bore Cain. And that didn't turn out so good. The man that we hoped Seth was going to be. And then Noah. And then Abraham. And as you read your Bible and you go through each of these historical patriarchs and you're like, maybe Abraham is the man or Isaac is the man. Maybe Jacob. No, it must be Joseph. And you keep going and going and going. You get David, a man after God's own heart. And then... Get to Daniel, get to all of the prophets, and yet none of them are the man. And then there's silence. For over 400 years, until one day, in a little town called Bethlehem, child is born. And angels appear to shepherds watching over their flocks by night. And they tell them that born to them this day in the city of David is a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And it was Jesus. Jesus who was not just any man. Who was not just a man. But He was the man. Romans chapter 5, verses 12, beginning in verse 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, speaking of Adam, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, who gave the law, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass, for if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin, for the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. But the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of the righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, Christ, the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace 
also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. This is what Jesus has done for us. And so he stands before this historical character, Pontius Pilate, a marker for us to know that this isn't just something that someone dreamed up one day, but it's something that really happened. It's an historical faith that we believe in. And yet, as he stood accused, he remained silent. Pilate is aggravated. Don't you hear the charges that they're bringing against you? You have nothing to say for yourself. What was he to say? He was there to do the Father's will. To give himself as a ransom for many. Going back to Isaiah 53 that we looked at a couple weeks ago, picking up just reading verse 7 where we left off. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that is before its shearers is silent, he opened not his mouth. Jesus allowed himself to go through all of this for you and for me. It's why we must get who Jesus is right. I don't have time to get into it, but Pilate wanted to compromise. He thought, surely these people wouldn't choose a murderer over this guy who just claimed to be the Son of God. I mean, maybe he's just crazy or something, right? So he offers to them Barabbas. That's his surname. Do you know what his given name is? I believe it's John who tells us. It's Jesus. Yeshua. And what is Barabbas? Bar Abba. Jesus, Son of the Father. But it was the wrong Jesus. It was a Jesus who was more like the people who were in the crowd. They thought, give us someone more like ourselves. Give us Barabbas. Give us the Jesus, the son of the guy we know, instead of Jesus, the only son of the heavenly Father. Give us Barabbas. What should I do? Pilate says with the king of the Jews and the same people who just less than a week before 
had danced and praised in the streets and said, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Shout it out three times. Crucify him. Crucify him. Crucify him. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas. And having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. Do you believe? Can you boast in the wisdom and power of God displayed for you in the person and work, the perfect life, the death, the burial, and resurrection of the real man, the man, as Pilate said, the God-man, Jesus Christ, who was delivered over to be crucified for you and in your place. Today, there's nothing here in this text for us to do. There is everything for us here to believe and to know. This is what happened. And it was done. And it was done for you. Do you believe? Do we believe? Sometimes I think we have to join the Father in Mark chapter 9 and say, Lord, I believe. Help thou my unbelief. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this day and for your word. And we thank you for including a person like Pontius Pilate for us so that we could know we could be confident, we could be assured that the faith that we proclaim today, the faith that we believe today is not just the fancies of men, but it really is the Word and the work of God for us and in our place. Help us, God, to increase our faith by the hearing of the Word of Christ today. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. God bless you as we move into a time of communion and I pray that we may all today feed on Christ in our hearts by faith. God bless you.